comments made about this new arrangement of the auditorium, but uh, just as with the Henry family, we were just made so much aware of the amazing team God has given this church. Almost anything you can think of we need, <laughs> there's somebody here who can do it. Quite astounding, and I don't think anyone here knows fully the amount of hours that were required to put these screens in place, the amazing technology required to make it work, and Bill running around like a chicken with his head cut off today trying to <laughs> make everything click. But aren't we thankful for these, the blessing God has given us in this church? Amen. Psalm 119.11, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against God. Friday I received the Voice of Martyrs April magazine. I'm sure some of you did the same thing. And this particular issue focuses upon Bible smuggling. It's interesting to read page after page how Bibles are being smuggled here and Bibles are being smuggled there and all the very innovative and really creative methods that Voice of Martyrs and others with them are using to get Scripture into closed countries. Some of those who have smuggled Bibles have been arrested, tortured, killed, but to get Bibles into the hands of the people, these who have paid that price feel the price is worth it, to get God's Word into the hands of people. When I was a teenager, I had some kind of an illness. I don't remember what it was, but I was bedfast for quite some time. It was not unusual in those days for Sunday school teachers to visit the students. And so two ladies, Sunday school teachers, came to my home to my bedside. And they gave me as a gift a book, a book written by Bruce Barton called The Man Nobody Knows. The Man Nobody Knows is a book that Bruce, Martin, uh, Bruce Barton wrote in the Early 1920s, he was trying to make Jesus acceptable to the roaring 20s, that particular age. And so Jesus was presented as a great executive. He was a great businessman, a great capitalist. And that book was a tremendous bestseller. Surprised everyone how well it sold. And then later he wrote another book, the book nobody knows. And that was about the Bible. And when you start reading the opening of that book, he begins to talk about people that he's visited with who have Bibles in their home who say, yes, we know the Bible. And then he begins to question them, and they have all kinds of strange sayings they think are in the Bible but aren't. For instance, God helps those who help themselves. That's not scripture, <laughs> but some might think it is. The book nobody knows. You know, as I recently, again, glanced at that book, I thought about this church. I was meeting with a minister of another congregation some weeks ago, and we were talking about the seminars we have here in January and February, the seminars we have in September and October, the fact we have Bible Bowl in which children are memorizing scripture, house churches, I know at least one that goes verse by verse in very serious exegesis. He said, you know, Tulsa Christian Fellowship must be the most biblically literate church in this city. I think we are. <laughs> because it's so wonderful to see how serious exegesis is a part of this church. 
But what if we were encountering someone out in the world who said, well, you know, I've heard about the Bible. What is it? We could describe it a lot of ways, couldn't we? We could say, well, the Bible is the bestseller in all the history of literature. We could say, well, it's a book with black leather cover. <laughs> and uh, sometimes when you're reading it, uh, the, the print suddenly changes from black to red. We could say, well, it's a collection of 66 documents. Start with the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You have three. Multiply three times three. You get nine. Three and nine, 39. That's the Old Testament. Multiply nine times three. That's 27. That's how many are in the new. The Old Testament consists of law, history, poetry, and prophecy. 512 used to say 519. I prefer to say 512. 5.5.12 because the minor prophets are definitely different from the major prophets. The New Testament 27, first four books of biography, history, letters and prophecy, GHLP, gulp. You could tell all kinds of things like that, but what is the Bible? How do we describe it to some people? How do we understand it? What is the Bible. Let me talk about that today. And first let me talk about some things the Bible isn't. <laughs> There's some people who view the Bible as a very mysterious book. Perhaps even having secret messages and secret verses in it. I, I don't know whether it was in the late 1950s or early 1960s, whether I was still preaching to farmers in Ohio or helping with the new church plant here in Tulsa, sometime along that way, for the first time I heard about the blood verse. And according to those who subscribe to the blood verse, there's a verse in the Bible that most don't know about, but if you can recite it, you can stop bleeding. And farmers do this with their cattle. You can do it with humans. And that verse is Ezekiel 16.6. When I passed by you and saw you squirming in your blood, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. I said to while you were in your blood, live. I recently read an article by a professor of a university in Tennessee and he was writing about hillbilly witchcraft, and he cited this verse, and he said, I've used it. And what you do if there's an animal bleeding or human bleeding, you say that verse three times over them and then shout their name, and the blood stops. He said, I've done it with stopping bleeding of dental and dehorning cattle and all this sort of thing. What do you think about that? <laughs> That's sorcery, isn't it? That's sorcery. The context of that verse is this. God is bringing a rebuke upon Jerusalem. And as he does so often, he uses the figure of a little baby girl that was born and cast out into the bushes. And no one had bothered to bathe the baby, to clean the blood off of her, the mess that was on her after birth. And he saw this little baby girl and said, I said, live. And he took the child and washed it. 
And the beautiful verses go on and the girl reaches puberty and he gives her beautiful clothing. He gives her beautiful jewels. And then she starts to use those to build idols. God said, that's the way it's been with Jerusalem. I took you when you were nothing. And look what you've done. That's the context of that verse. It has nothing to do with stopping blood. But how do we explain the fact that people have been able to do this and it has worked? As a matter of fact, the way this happens is not everybody can do it. It's a secret that has to be passed from a man to a woman, from a woman to a man, to a man to a woman. It can't be passed man to man or woman to woman. It has to go that particular route. And if somebody has given you this secret and you've received it that way, you can use this verse and it works. Sorcery. Sorcery. The Bible is not a book of sorcery. Remember our Lord Jesus said that in the latter times there would be deceiving miracles. (laughs) Closing Sermon on the Mount Jesus said, many in that day will say to me, Lord, Lord, and I will say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I would Lord, don't you know what we did? We cast out demons in your name. We raised people in your name. And Jesus said, in essence, you were doing your own thing, not the will of my Father. Just because somebody can do something that looks like a miracle to us does not mean they're agents of God. They can be agents of Satan practicing sorcery and there are lying wonders that the devil loves to put forth in the world (laughs) to deceive as Jesus said would deceive the very elect very sad to say isn't it there was a time just a very few years ago when everybody was caught up in biblical numerology I remember I was ministering in Ohio one time while the elders there was so caught up in this bizarre stuff all this secret stuff He was finding in the Bible and Bible numbers, totally missing the message, but looking for secrets. Bill, a couple of weeks ago, spoke about the Philippians 4.13 verse and how important it is to understand the context of that. The word of faith theology that's so broad in Tulsa today, to a large degree, is doing exactly what I've spoken of earlier. Bella Christian Church, there was one dear lady that got caught up in this doctrine very strongly. And Barbara one day was riding with her in the car and she came to a place wanting to get out into traffic and the traffic was so heavy there was no way she could make a break. So she gripped the steering wheel and by the way the gear shift was here. I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me. I can do all things through Christ. She thought by pronouncing that verse, she could force an opening in the traffic and she could proceed into it. (laughs) As Bill pointed out a couple of weeks ago, that verse is talking about you can endure prosperity, you can endure poverty, but as long as you have Christ, I can do all things. Oh, it's so sad, isn't it, to see how people have such a misunderstanding of Scripture. The Bible is not a book of mysterious, magical sayings. Neither is the Bible God. 
About a year after the Israelites left Egypt, this would have been about 1446 to 1445 B.C., they began to grumble about the fact that God was not giving them a very broad diet. It wasn't uh, the variety they wanted. He had given them manna. They could take it and bake it and so on. But they said, we're tired of this food. And besides that, water is hard to find. We'll just go back. Why would you bring us out here? And God said, you're not honoring me as God. And he caused poisonous serpents to begin to invade the camp. And people were bitten and people died. And they came to Moses and said, please, we realize we've sinned, we confess our sin, please implore God to stop this. And Moses went before God and implored the Lord, interceded in behalf of the people. God didn't stop the snakes, but what he did was this. He said, Moses, make a serpent out of brass and put it on a pole so high that anyone anywhere in the camp can see it. And if anyone is bitten by a snake, have him look at that brazen serpent that you've made exactly the way I told you to do it, and he'll be healed. Isn't it interesting? God didn't stop the snakes, but he gave them a chance to obey. He gave them a chance to express their faith that he is a faithful God and will do what he says. And that's exactly what happened. When they were bitten by the snakes, they looked at the brazen serpent and they were healed. Now, when they left that campsite in the region where the snakes were found, they kept it with them. They marched along carrying it with them. 700 years later, they still had it, and they were worshiping it. They were burning incense to it. This which had been an agent of God that God had used to give them a chance to express faith and belief in Him had become the object of worship rather than the God who gave it to them. And so Hezekiah, 700 years after this event, smashed it to get rid of it because it had become an idol. For some people, the Bible is an idol. There are some who have a relationship with a book rather than the author of the book. When that happens, something has gone awry. Frankly, that's the background from which I came. Everything was in the Bible. You never heard from God except what you read. You could pray but never expect anything to come. I wonder why I pray now, but that's where I was with that group. In one way, God delivered me from that. And some of you know the story. I'll briefly tell it again. When I, through exegesis, no longer could be a cessationist, I began to speak to my fellow ministers about this. I became a pariah. I'd help plant 13 churches in northeastern Oklahoma, no longer welcome in the pulpit of any of them. I had managed church camp through the summer, six weeks, no longer welcome on the campgrounds. I lectured in Bible colleges. I was banned from the Bible colleges. People wrote things about me all over the country. <laughs> but the kids... Bellar Christian Church wanted to go to church camp and couldn't because one of the rules was 
For the children of a church to go to church camp, the minister had to serve at least two weeks. I was banned. That meant the kids in our church couldn't go to church camp. And so I went to the church group that met and I said, look, let me run the kitchen. I surely will not be a threat if you let me run the kitchen. (laughs) So I became the kitchen manager. What a wonderful thing. You know, in ministry, you do all kinds of work, and you don't see results for years later. I love to wash dishes because a stack moves from here to here. You see it happen. (laughs) And so we had, I I managed the kitchen, you know, help with preparation of food, washing the dishes afterwards, uh, helping get the the, uh, dining hall ready for the next day. While I was doing all of that in the evening, everybody else was off in another room having a worship service and singing, and I was not allowed. But what a wonderful thing it was. On the back of the lodge of Greenleaf State Park, there's a back porch, and just beyond that back porch, the hillside descends, and below is Greenleaf Lake. And so the first night, I said, I I used to go there in the morning to read my Bible. I want to go out there and pray. And so I went to my bunk, and I grabbed my Bible, and I grabbed a flashlight, and I'm going to go out there. The Holy Spirit said, leave your Bible behind. And I did. And I went on the back porch of that lodge, and the moon was shining brightly and glistening on the lake below and I began to pray I began to sing I began to worship God as if my voice were blended with a chorus of angels I had an encounter with God in a beautiful way I'd never had by reading the Bible that was a wonderful next night I'm going to do the same thing I went back to my bunk to grab a Bible flashlight again leave it behind night after night What a beautiful thing to have that direct contact with God. Not just through reading a book. Usually when church camp was over, I could hardly wait to get home. I was so tired of living with 120 kids 24 hours a day, week after week. But that year I hated to leave that campgrounds because I'd found something beautiful I'd never known before the word of God in a living way not just a printed way we must be careful that our Bible does not replace God many years when I traveled without Barbara and she was left at home couldn't do this when Gordon and I were in Russia, but in the United States, I would always write Barbara love letters. And throughout the year, I would surprise her for no reason, not any celebration or anything, just a little love note she would find in the kitchen expressing my love. Often, as many of you know, I leave the house early in the morning to go meet with men before they go to work, but those mornings I didn't. I would always have the coffee pot ready so when she got up, it'd be there and there was always a love note beside the coffee pot. 
I didn't know she'd kept any of that. But one day, not long before she died, she said, Jim, I've kept your letters. I've kept your love notes. They're in the cedar chest at the foot of our bed. I don't want anybody else to see them. They're too personal between us. After she died, I opened that cedar chest and found packets, all of them encased with a lace garter. (laughs) And I took them out and burned them so no one could see them. Those letters were precious to her. But let me tell you something. She didn't focus on the letters. She focused on the man that wrote them. It's important that we understand what the Word of God is, what the Scripture is. It's the Word of God. But He's the author. And that's the one to whom we look. What is the Bible? Well, bottom, it's this. It's God's objective revelation of Himself. (laughs) I like Colorado. Throughout our life, we never took vacations, Barbara and I, but after it come here the first year, Jim Kreitz said, we're going to go down to Georgia to visit your daughter. Why don't you go with us? <laughs> Jim Kreitz had a box truck. He said, I'll create an apartment there for Marlene and for me, and I have a mobile home. We'll pull it behind you, and Barbara can have that as your apartment. So we went to visit Diana and her family in Augusta, Georgia, and up to Myrtle Beach and back to Tulsa. Then the next year he said, we're going to go to Colorado. Why don't you go with us? Same deal. And so we did. And we were captured in our hearts by Colorado. And so for the next four years, Barbara and I took a vacation and went to Colorado. And then Carl and Doris and Bob and Shirley and Barb and I took a whirlwind trip and then through Colorado one time. One thing I like about Colorado is this. As I look at those magnificent mountains, as I look at the canyons, as I look at these huge rocks, God did that. God did that. I think of the flood of Noah. Barb and I, in the year she was healthy enough to do so, we climb mountains and actually find aquatic fossils up on these mountains. Astounding to think about, isn't it? The flood of Noah. God did all of this. But you know, people all over the world have looked at the handiwork of God and they tried to figure him out. <laughs> the Plains Indians would see storm clouds and lightning in the distance, and here comes a tornado, and so they begin to develop a concept of God from what they see. There are some who look to the wolf as being everything, <laughs> the spirit of the wolf. And some can look at the rocks and mountains of Colorado and speak of some strange God of the mountains. One might come to some subjective view of God that way, but what is God's objective revelation? How can we know who He really is and what He is in His nature, His character? 
the Bible. The Bible is God's objective revelation of himself. In which we learn about who he is and what he is and his will and how we can please him and obey him. We mentioned the last time we spoke Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to God, but the things have been revealed, have been revealed to the sons of Jacob that they might obey him. The objective revelation of God. Isn't that something you want to... The only, the only thing we can really know about God that we know for certain we find in the Word and what we see in these marvelous things of nature merely illustrate the true God that we find in His Holy Word. Aren't we thankful <laughs> that when we look in that Word... We find a creator who expects to be honored as God, realizes we're imperfect, and offers his grace. We only know that through the word of God. And then when we accept that, it becomes a beautifully, wonderful, personal experience. What is the Bible? Well, it's a series of documents. If you look at a Protestant Bible, it's 66. If you look at a Roman Catholic Bible, it's more. If you look at a Bible of the Eastern Orthodox, they do not accept the book of Revelation, so the number's different. <laughs> but it is a book that God has written for us. We studied... September and October, I guess it was, <laughs> the exodus from Egypt to Nebo, and how many times God said to Moses, write, write, write. And Moses wrote what God told him to write. Paul, writing to Timothy, his young companion, said, remember the things you've learned he said, and be convinced of the one from whom you learned them. And then he said, from a child, because of your grandmother and your mother, you were exposed to the Old Testament. You have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, who is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training, for righteousness. He was speaking of the Old Testament. But the new as well. First Peter one, sixteen to twenty one. Peter says, You know, we haven't followed just cleverly devised labels. He said, Let me tell you something. <laughs> one day we were on a mountain. And before our very eyes, we saw Jesus transfigured, and from heaven a voice said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. I saw it. 
And then he says the prophets of old. He said that scripture that's speaking of the Old Testament prophets is not by any. And, and the Greek word here is really a hard one to translate. Some translate it by any private interpretation, other things. It's word used in a variety of ways. But the sense is this, that prophets were not just tremendous analysts of their time, like some guys on television think they are today. <laughs> I can tell you exactly what's going to happen tomorrow. No, they were not men who were analyzing the news and deducing from it what was going to happen, but they spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. It's a book. But it's more than a book. The word Bibli, Bible comes from the Greek biblios, which means book. It's more than a book. For thus, who have the Protestant Bible, the Western Protestant Bible, it is 66 documents authored by the Holy Spirit through human agents. And we're blessed to have it today. What an what a amazing thing that we have in our Bible. As I read that, or really scanned it, I didn't read it seriously, that article from the Voice of Martyrs, I was reminded again of not only how fortunate we are in America to have a Bible, but also how fortunate we are to live post the printing press. <laughs> you really think about that. Prior to Gutenberg's development of an operable movable type, the Chinese invented it. They never were able to master it, but Gutenberg did. Prior to that time, most people didn't even have a single bit of scripture. Not every church, some Catholic priest didn't even have any scripture. All they had was a breviary, which was the liturgy and the prayers, which did contain scripture. To 1299, one portion of France passed a law that was against the law for anyone other than a priest to have a portion of scripture. Think about that. <laughs> And even if one desired with all of his heart to have Scripture, it was impossible to have it because the documents that were available certainly were not all collected in a book. But it cost more money than the average person could ever dream of having. And we have them scattered everywhere, don't we? <laughs> Big ones, little ones, expensive ones, cheap ones. What a privilege we have to have the Word of God. When we read Scripture, if we read it with a right heart, we're not just reading a book. We're hearing the voice of God. What a marvelous thing to think about how much Scripture is able to be sort of a spiritual x-ray <laughs> And look inside and heed what's there and reveal us to ourselves. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intents of the heart. I sit before God the wee hours of the morning in the dark, absolute silence. Several mornings a week. 
And I ask God to audit my life. Show me some secret corner in the basement of my soul where you're not Lord. And even though I'm 86, (laughs) and he's done that faithfully over the years, he still shows me a corner, one of which I was ignorant, that I can surrender to him. But you know the same thing happens when you read the Word of God led by the Holy Spirit. God uses the Bible also as that x-ray of the soul. I thank God that he has not left us as, let us say, the Cherokees. (laughs) I'm an eighth Cherokee, so I can talk about Cherokees. OCO, that means hello. (laughs) Wado, that means blessing, whatever, but there's no written spiritual matters the elders know it all (laughs) and it's all orally transmitted and out of every generation there are young men chosen to sit with the elders and hear that oral passing on of the tradition so that it will not be lost I thank God I don't have to depend on an oral tradition I have something solid and secure in the Word of God. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thank you, Jim.